12.30, can you believe it? Man. Yeah, thank you all for being back. We're, obviously, some people are going to be joining us. I want to say a few more things about the conflict resolution tool, and we can do that while, while the other people are joining us. I think Nick has another song, too. Is that right? Why don't you come on up here, Nick? That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. The uh, conflict resolution tool, um, we, I, I forgot to tell you, once, once the first person goes through the process and they've said where I stand, then they invite the other person to take their place at the head of the cross and they sit down. The first thing that the, that the person who was the active listener who was holding their hand over their mouth to keep from speaking, the first thing they're going to do is stand at the head of the cross and recap, summarize in a very succinct way what they just heard. So that person will say, you know, what I heard from you, if, if I was recapping my wife, I'd say, what I, what I heard from you, honey, is that you, um, that the, the issue is buying furniture for the new house. What you wish is that you could just ditch all of our old furniture and completely refurnish the whole place with the new stuff. <laughs> um, and some of your feelings are that you're so excited about the house and you feel bad about wanting more. And, you know, just recap what I heard, recap her, her proposal and where she stood. And then I get to take my turn and go through the process, too. Typically, what happens is that the first round, the proposals are often different. Um, now, you'll find that as you get better with this, you will, you'll get better at resolving conflict. And you may be able to come up to the proposal that you both agree on after one round. But, um, but very often, even after going through it two or three rounds, you're still miles apart in terms of where you're, where you're looking at things. What I've found is if you'll stop at the prescribed time, you know, if you've allotted 30 minutes, stop at 30 minutes. It doesn't matter where you are in the process, stop. If it's 30, 45 minutes or an hour, stop when you say you're going to stop and then commit it to prayer. Ask God to bring you to to unity. Because very often, God changes our minds. You know, he, he reveals something that we were blind to. And as we listen to our own hearts, listen to God, and listen to what we've heard from our mate in going through this process, or from the person we're working with, or our child, whoever it is that we have the conflict with, as we let it implant in our, in our hearts, it begins to sprout. It begins to bring forth fruit um, of righteousness and fruit of peace. So that's a good thing. So come on up, Nick, and um, lead us. Yes, yes, yes. Jay. Uh, does somebody have the, who has a, does it, is there a roving mic out there for the sake of the uh, recording? Yeah, but it won't be on the recording. Uh, you can, you're not going to get that loud, Jay. <laughs> So you reach the end of your, your 30 minutes on the first day. Do you make a time on the second day to come back and begin this process Typically, again? Typically, well, if there's not a sense of urgency, and of course, sometimes we avoid conflict until it is urgent. Like, you know, are we going to my parents' house for Thanksgiving or not? We have to book our tickets by midnight tonight. Um, um, but if, if you can, um, if, if you get better addressing conflict, usually what you can do is say, let's, um, let's come back to this in two days or in a week. Give yourself a little bit of time to sleep on it, to, you know, even a, a decision like buying a new car. Um, very often it makes sense to go through the process and say, let's sleep on it and then come back to it tomorrow. Um, very often that little gap of time will allow both people to shift so that resolution becomes possible. And you, it's so cool to see God change you and change the people you're in relationship with by shining a light on those things that otherwise we would be blind to. Um, the cool thing about this, this the, the take it to the cross thing, is by taking the, the discussion away from right and wrong, it allows you to defer to one another in a very beautiful way. Typically, on any given situation, um, one, one person or the other has a much greater emotional investment. If it's what color you're going to paint the walls in the living room, 
one of you may really care about this much while the other one cares this much. And on that decision, does it not make sense for the one who cares this much to say, baby, paint them whatever color you, makes you happy. Whereas the next decision that comes up, the, the, the partner who cared this much about the paint on the walls may care this much. And at that point, by opening your heart and saying, you know what, this is really important to me, it makes it easy then for the partner to say, you know what, I'm happy to go your way on this one. Um, it just gives you that sense of give and take um, and deferring, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ that the Bible talks about. It's so good. Um, any other thing on the conflict resolution thing before we pray? Um, where's the, is that, there's, there's one right there. Is it Juanita? Yes, sir. Okay. I had a question about, so the first person who's gone through yes. sits down, tapes a mouth, second person begins, and restates what they heard. Is there an intervention of what they Ooh, heard? Ooh, great question. Thank you so much. Way, way different. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Not yeah, that what, that would ever happen in my perfect. life. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> perfect question. Yeah, what, what, once I've, one, if, let's say my wife has gone first, and I've tried to reflect back what I heard from her. Um, once I've kind of given what I, what were the high points of what I heard, what I heard, then I say, so was that pretty close? And um, she will either say one of two things. She'll go like, yeah, it's pretty good. Or she'll go, mm, well, there's one thing that I think I really need to make sure you heard from me, and that is, you know, how, how, how good a provider I think you are, you know, or I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure you understand the emotional impact of this decision for me or whatever it is. So that's the only time the person seated would speak up. And I'm so glad you clarified that. Yeah. Cause the, because, and, and typically what I will do if I'm the one sitting, I'll take notes because, and, and I do that when I, when I counsel with people, I routinely take notes because what I, what I want to listen for are those key phrases, those moments when the person is obviously tapping into something very deep, and I want to write that down because I do not want to forget it. So much of counseling is reflecting back a shared language, being able to, to enter into the, even the words that the person uses that have particular relevance for them. And in a marriage, God conspires to get you with someone who thinks so differently than you that if you don't really discipline yourself, you will miss it, you know. So, so taking notes is a really good thing, and you can, use, you can use your cheat sheet when you stand up here and say, what I heard from you is, <laughs> um, it's okay, because there is something very calming about hearing another person reflect back what you have just communicated to them. So cool. It's like that Wailing Wall I mentioned in Jerusalem. Anybody been to Jerusalem and gone to the Wailing Wall? It is an, it's a very profound experience because it's a place that, you know, we talk about the gap, um, that there's a gap in what we experience on this planet and the ideal. For the Jews, the ideal would be that the, the temple would be rebuilt. But the Wailing Wall is the only surviving wall of the Temple Mount. And its presence is reflective of the fact that God's will is not always done on earth. And for all of us, when we're in grief, when we're in conflict, having that uh, wailing wall is important. And what, what the wall does is not to fix it and make it better. It doesn't open up a door to a bright new future. Um, but it also doesn't fall on the person and crush them. If, if the wall does anything, it reflects back the cry of the griever, the, the mourner. And so in this, this tool, we're practicing something that you do, as, as Ruth was sharing, in dealing with someone who's grieving. You simply reflect back, like that wall. You echo back what you're hearing, maybe in slightly different words, but you demonstrate your um, ability to enter in with them and affirm the validity of those feelings, even if they're way, way off base. Because once you affirm the validity, then the person will, will self-correct a little bit. Um, if a person is dealing with grief and, and saying, you know, I just feel like I've, everything I've ever loved, I've lost. I feel like God has abandoned me. I feel I have no future and that everyone would be better off if I die today. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there thinking like, what? Are you nuts? You know, um, what is wrong with you? Sometimes I, you know, I want to correct their 
their perception. What I found is if I just say, so you're feeling that God is nowhere for you, that everything is lost, and that even the people around you would be better off if you did, your, did, did away with yourself. Amazingly, when I do that, the person will often say, that's how I feel. But I know that God is still good. Even though I don't sense his presence, I know he still cares for me. I know that my kids would be devastated if I kill myself, but sometimes I just don't want to wake up in the morning. They begin to broaden their own perspective simply based on being heard. It's the greatest thing. So um, in, this, in this process, do check in with the person. Once you've said, once you've reflected back, did I get it pretty close? And often you will, but occasionally there'll be some, you know, course correction before then the person takes off on their own journey through the, through the cross. Okay, good. Yay. One more, Debbie. Um, thank you, Juanita. It's important to use the mic so that when we do the tapes, um, we'll have the question as well as the response. It's my understanding that the Scripture says that truth and mercy purge iniquity. And I'm wondering if there's a actually a way that that fits into to what you're talking about. The, the, the uh, truth and mercy purge iniquity. The, what, what we know is that um, Jesus came full of grace and truth. Mercy and truth are embodied in the presence of Jesus. And what we tend to do in our conversation with those that we care about, whether it's a counselee, a spouse, a child, we tend to err on one side or the other. We tend to be truth mongers and want to just tell them the truth. Or we tend to, to um, be uh, mercy moms, you know, or uh, just want to just be gooey grace and, you know, just avoid the truth so that we can make people feel better. Um, Jesus uh, walked that line uh, full of grace and truth. And when grace and truth meet, it does dispel darkness. We can speak the truth like Jesus did with the woman at the well, telling her the truth about her sin without entering into judgment. It's the greatest thing. When you really care for people, when you've done the work of your own soul and, and come to self-acceptance, then you can be very truthful with people um, without entering into judgment. And that combination of mercy and truth does dispel the darkness. Um, it's, the, it's the greatest thing. Thanks for asking. Why don't we um, go ahead and enter into our song, and then um, I'll say a couple of words and, and invite Ruth back up. So thanks, Nick. Uh, would everybody please stand up again? And um, I just want to say something. Um, when Moses and all the Israelite people got out from, um, you know, the captivity from Egypt, and uh, when God, right after God parted the waters and closed them down on their oppressors, um, a, a song rose up from them. A uh, song of worship, of uh, praise to God, because of all the past that had been undone in the lives. And right now, as I look at y'all, you know, I'm reminded that we've all been there and we've all gotten through it. And we're here learning how to help others do that. And as we sing this song, I just want you to remember those moments and how just God took you out of those. And sing along if you, this song's very repetitive, so uh, just sing along with me. I confess my hope in the light of your salvation. Where I lose myself, I will find your all I need. Sing my soul of a Savior's love. Sing my soul unto God of all. Thank you, God. I will meet you here in the love we call surrender. 
Let the world I know be the glory of your grace. Sing my song of a Savior's love. Sing my song unto God Sing it with me. You alone are God. You alone are God. We declare the glory of your name. Jesus reign in our hearts is what equips us to um, to serve, and it's it's that invitation to those that come to us to allow Jesus to take that central place, to be the keeper of our hearts. Um, we're getting ready here from Ruth again. She's going to be, um, and you can go ahead and make your way up here, Ruth. Um, she's going to be talking to us about trauma, and we know Jesus says that. That things will come into the life of the little of little ones that cause them to stumble, but woe to the one who who through whom that that offense comes. Um, what we're going to find as we listen to Ruth is that trauma um, is a part of living on this this planet, um, and yet how we respond to it, and how we respond to it when it shows up in others makes all the difference. So um, give Ruth a warm welcome, and thank you for for sharing. Thank you, Paul.
Thank you. This is a great color. I was just looking at this color. I don't know who chose that, but it's cool. We, my husband and I just painted the walls of our living room. So and we both had some feelings about it. Um, as I said this morning, um, grief and trauma often coexist. Um, the world's a dangerous place, lots of uh, calamity. Right now, the world seems to be in, a, in the grip of lunacy. I don't, it's, there's an attack of lunacy going on out there. Um, lots of tragedy and calamity going on all over the world, and um, it's a very sobering time to be alive. Um, I, I shared with you some of my, uh, my interest in the, in the field of grief counseling um, comes from that, that equation, that, that tremendous opportunity that people have to, to grow and, and be transformed through the grieving process when it happens the way that God's designed it to happen. Um, with trauma, I'm also uh, I'm equally fascinated by how people deal with trauma, tra traumatic events in their lives that, that severely um, tax the ability to cope. A trauma is something that kind of l lies outside the range of normal human experiences. It's just something that comes out of the blue, usually. Um, it, and while we have um, pre-wired pre biological mechanisms for coping with, with crises and all manner of things that come up in life, a trauma is something that kind of pushes you beyond, beyond your normal coping responses. Um, it's, and, and I do, um, I'm a, a debriefing specialist for a, um, a company called Crisis Care Network. I don't know if any of you have heard of Crisis Care Network. But they, um, they dispatch counselors and crisis intervention teams to sites around the country and around the world where there's been some kind of traumatic incident. There's been a workplace accident or somebody just uh, has died suddenly, um, you know, a co-worker has died suddenly or there's been a natural disaster and, and uh, usually it's companies that have a contract with CCN um, ahead of time, so that if some traumatic incident were to befall my employees, um, they already have a system in place for sending somebody out to the site to deal with it. And, and one of the first things that, that I communicate when I show up and there's been at, at a bank where there's been an armed robbery, that's a traumatic incident. Um, whatever reactions we talk about, whatever physical symptoms you might be feeling, whatever emotional symptoms you might be feeling, they are normal, they are normal reactions to abnormal events. So just like memorize that, engrave that on your tongue, that whatever, they, whatever the person presents, I've been through this freaky, awful experience, and I don't understand why, I, I, why I'm shaking all the time, or I don't, I don't understand, you know, this happened weeks ago, and I'm still, I still can't sleep, and all those things. It's normal. Your body is recovering. It's like you, you had surgery, and you're still recovering. Physically, you're actually recovering from the tremendous surge of chemicals that God has set it, set it up so that when we have to respond to a trauma or an emergency, we have this fight or flight reflex, right, that you're probably familiar with. That involves the release of adrenaline and cortisol and these chemicals that are tremendously useful in getting us up and out and able to survive it. Um, but it's like taking a heavy dose of some kind of drug, and you have to almost detox from that. So, that, so there are physical things going on, emotional things, and you always want to just go back to that. That's one of the things that happens when people go through traumatic incidents. It's a normal, it's within the range of normal 
reactions to abnormal experiences. Very helpful to uh, keep that in mind and keep that in front of the people. Um, you can't, I, I heard somebody, a presenter say the other day, you can't over-educate people about the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, by, by saying you might, you might feel this or you might feel that or um, this is happening because of your, because of the hormones that, you know, or whatever, you can't, by, by educating them about something that they might feel about the incident, um, you're, it's not like you're prescribing it. It's not like you, you say, well, you might feel this way and then, you're, then they're going to feel that way because you suggested it. <laughs> you know, people are not going to take suggestions like that. <laughs> they, will, uh, they will feel um, validated that, um, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not, I'm not um, there's not something wrong with me. I'm having a normal human response. Um, I put some, some statistics on, oh, before, before I go to that, um, having introduced um, our talk on trauma with that, the way that I did, uh, this um, part of your handout, this coping with trauma, is direct, comes directly from Crisis Care Network. And this is what they usually send to me when they'll usually call me a day before and say, um, you know, we'd like you to go to this hospital or whatever the, the site is um, tomorrow from 10 to 12 and do a debriefing with the employees and they will send me some version of this, this handout that is um, very useful on the, on the right side in the, in the gray area. It shows, it shows common physical responses to trauma, emotional responses, mental responses, behavioral responses. And then on the other side is just some general advice, um, recommendations for managing the stress. And we'll, we'll um, talk a little bit more about, about those, a little more specifically about those, but that's just in that realm of, okay, this is what happens to many people when they've had a traumatic incident. So they can go, oh, okay, so that, that's normal, I'm normal. Good. We all want to be normal, right? I love that. I love that movie, Little Little Miss Sunshine, when they're they're. Uh, anybody seen that movie? It's kind of kind of crazy, funny movie, but they're they're. Um, they've got um, his father has just died, and he's in the back of the van, and they're trying to. They get pulled over by a cop, and and he says, he says, okay, everybody pretend to be normal. <laughs> they're all sitting there. Everybody pretend to be normal. Um, just to, to um, lay out some statistics, just so we normalize the prevalence of trauma. I mean, this really makes it real. One in three women, this is astounding to me, one in three women and one in five men have been sexually abused in some way before the age of 18. So that, how many, I don't know how many people, we got a couple hundred people in this room. One in three. One in three women, one in five men, have had some kind of traumatic violation of their s sexual self, um, which typically is, is experienced as a trauma uh, to some degree. Um, one in four women is, is raped or sexually violated at some point in her lifetime. And approximately five million Americans experience PTSD every year. PTSD, if you are not familiar with that, is post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is a, is a particular diagnosis in the spectrum of trauma, um, the most severe end of the spectrum of, of trauma. But that's a lot of people um, that, are, that may be going, going through some kind of, some level of PTSD all around you, and then because we have um, two areas of major conflict where the military is engaged, um, about 20% of those that, are, that have served in Iraq or Afghanistan are returning with um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, the Woodlands Church is a huge church, um, 
full of people that have had one or more of these kinds of traumatic experiences that you might find walking through your door. Um, categories of traumatic events um, are obviously natural disasters. Um, when Hurricane Ike came, um, I was sent by CCN down to Texas City to the, uh, the hospital down there because they had had to um, evacuate the hospital, so they had to move all the patients to another location, and the doctors and the nurses and the support staff, um, many of them who live in, in Galveston or Texas City, their homes were destroyed. Um, you know, so the entire community, the patients and all of the employees were impacted heavily by, by Hurricane Ike. So I go down there, and this was just a few days after the event, and they were ready to start bringing the patients back, so the staff was having to show up for work again, and uh, some of the staff, you know, didn't have homes and didn't have cars and didn't, you know, they didn't know what was going to happen. They were severely traumatized themselves, but they, the only thing they knew to do was to go to work. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll show up at work and see what, what happens, what's happening there. So I'm, I'm going, you know, the, the happy little counselor going down to Texas City thinking that I'm going to talk with people about their thoughts and feelings about this storm that's happened to them. So I have this, this line of people forming to come and have a little one-on-one -on -one conversation with me. And, and you know what they wanted to know? Where do I get those papers to file for FEMA? And um, can, can you book a hotel room for me in Clear Lake? Because I don't know where to go. And so you have to consider um, what we call the hierarchy of needs. You know, sometimes the person is not um, ready to talk about their feelings because they're still in some kind of acute crisis where you need to, you need to help them bridge to a more practical type of support. You know, because people, that, that's how the hierarchy works. We have to take care of our survival needs first, right? And our, um, you know, we have to feel safe and we have to have food and shelter and, um, and then, then, we can, um, then we can start looking at our belonging, our, our needs to connect with people, our, our self-esteem, all those things that are more on the, in the emotional and relationship domain. You have to make sure that somebody's basic needs are being taken care of. Um, so that was, that was a lesson to me because I, I wound up spending the whole time on the phone and on the computer trying to get <laughs> these people connected to, you know, an insurance person or, you know, I didn't, didn't do a whole lot of counseling that day. Um, then there's this whole area of intentional or what we, the media is calling man-made disasters and that's, you know, all manner of, of evil that, that people uh, perpetrate against other people and animals and environments. So bombings and terrorist attacks and um, assaults, sexual assaults, those kinds of things. Um, then we have a whole other area which are ongoing, repeated, you know, somebody who's serving for months and months and months in a, in a combat, in a forward area with the military, um, they may experience trauma after trauma after trauma um, with no escape from it. They're constantly, constantly alert, constantly on guard, constantly ready, never really sleep. <laughs> you know, because you always have to be ready to respond. Um, or somebody who, you know, a spouse that's in an abusive relationship that has not been able to escape to a place of safety. Sometimes those situations persist for months and years at a time and create um, many layers of traumatic stress. So... Um, you could, be, you could be dealing with one type of very acute uh, trauma from an incident that's happened recently, or you could be looking face-to-face -face with somebody who's had 
just, as I said this morning, just a batch of stuff that has befallen them all of a sudden. <clears throat> so the, the story that we talked about of Job this morning, I wanted to introduce that story because it is both a story of, of profound grief and profound trauma coexisting. Um, and the things that I shared about the counselor's response, many of them are exactly the same. It's not a time to see if you can get somebody saved, you know, see if you can convince them of something or, or practice your, your theology on them. It's a time to um, be very still, be very calm, be very... Uh, you, you want to, in, in order to make it safe for a person to process the, a traumatic experience, um, it's it's going to it's going to inhibit someone from really being able to begin making sense of things if they feel like you are you are entering into their feeling of chaos you, you have to connect with people let them know that you understand that they're in, that they're feeling very vulnerable and create as much safety as you can in that environment without without stepping over into their sense of helplessness or hopelessness. You have to maintain your own inner sense of, as Paul has said very, very beautifully, you know, that I don't, I don't know what God is doing here, but he is, he is here, and he is still in control, and I'm going to, even if this person has lost sight of that, I'm going to maintain my hold on that, that I know that God is kind, that I know that God, is, that God knows everything that needs to be known about this, that God, if I remain open in my spirit to God's ministry, then he will use me as a vessel. I just need to, I need to stay connected to God and let, let his ministry flow through me without getting overwhelmed myself. Because it's it's easy for us to do that. We're, we wouldn't you wouldn't be here if you weren't a very compassionate person, and very compassionate people can be very moved moved beyond the point of help, helpfulness by by the story that you're hearing. So um, you have to um, in this kind of work you have to be really take care of yourself. You really have to have accountability relationships and and know, know when you need to address um, when you're being triggered by somebody else's story of trauma. If you have a similar experience in, in your life and you find that you're getting really triggered by somebody's story, that's an indication, I, I think I need, I need to talk with somebody about this to, in, in order to be effective um, ministering to others. So... Um, there is, as I mentioned, a kind of a spectrum of trauma. It's kind of a, a spectrum of intensity, severity, duration of trauma symptoms. Um, and that, that would start with just an acute, an acute stress reaction. That would be something that, you know, there's a car accident, um, and the person is, is very agitated, very upset, very unstable for a about a month, you know, two, two, three weeks, they start start putting things back together, start moving forward. They they're able to resolve it to the point where, okay, I'm I'm coping with this pretty well. That would be an acute stress reaction. Um, acute PTSD, acute, and these are kind of arbitrary diagnostic definitions, but acute acute PTSD would be would be a more severe reaction, a more severe trauma reaction, but it's something that is, it's, when we say acute, it's, it's right here in front of you, it's, um, it, but it can be resolved within about three months' time. The person returns to pretty normal functioning after about three months. Um, chronic PTSD would be if it, if it continues, if the symptoms continue at a pretty pretty uh, moderate to severe level after three months, then, then you know that 
that person is probably experiencing PTSD. And, you know, you, that's another circumstance where you might want to be in consultation with a supervisor, with a, with a mental health person, just so you, you're sure that, that the person um, is going to be able to work with you and, and, and that you can be helpful to them at that level of care. And, you know, it may be, it may be absolutely the perfect level of care for somebody, but you, you want to make sure of that, that there isn't something more that, might, that they might need to help their recovery process. Um, some of the symptoms that, that, we, that we look at with, that are very common, they're on, they're on that, that handout from CCN, but it just kind of in, in broad, broad categories, I've kind of grouped them together. Um, some of them have to do with just um, re-experiencing the event, flashbacks, and, you know, I, I had a, um, a client that had served in Iraq, and he drove from out in the country somewhere to go to work every day, and he said that um, there was a certain curve in the road on his drive to work, and every time he went around that little curve in the road, he was back in Iraq. He had this adrenaline rush, he could he could remember the day when the IED went off when he was in that in that part of Iraq, and you know, so um, you never know what what can trigger um, a, a post-traumatic a memory, a flashback, a, an agitated emotional response. Um, so some people have nightmares about the event um, or just very vivid memories of it. Um, there are a, a lot of avoidance behaviors that that go along with this. Avoiding, you know, there's been a, a you've been involved in a in a very severe uh, car accident. I I know, know of people that will drive miles out of the way um, to avoid seeing the scene of that accident because it causes such a such a reaction in them. Um, so you you may see some. Um, avoidance of anything that might cause them to relive or re-experience that event. Um, hypervigilance is a fancy word for just being just hyper uh, on edge, just hyper aware of your surroundings um, and very, very nervous. And so, so that's something to keep in mind um, when, when somebody has experienced a trauma is the, the very... Um, the setup in the room where you're counseling. You know, sometimes people need to be able to be close to the door or, or see the door or have the door open or have the door shut or um, they'd rather sit next to you than face to face with you or, the, you know, they're, they're too hot, they're too cold. Any, you know, anything that um, invite them to tell you, is there something about this moment right here, this relationship, this room, is there something, is there some way, is everything okay? Are you comfortable? Is there anything that we can do to make you more comfortable? Um, because they, you know, got to have, again, that hierarchy of needs. If they don't feel safe sitting in your office, they're probably not going to get real far in their processing of the, of the trauma. Um, Escape behaviors, um, dissociation. Dissociation is, is kind of spacing out, blanking out, kind of going away. And dissociation is a very normal process that we all do. You know, have you ever, I'm sure you have, but um, rhetorically, um, you know, you drive, you drive somewhere and you're so preoccupied, you're so lost in your thoughts that you pull in your driveway and you have no absolutely no recollection of anything that you saw or did on your way there. Sometimes that's a little scary for me. It's like, thank you, Lord, because I was not there. I mean, my foot was on the gas pedal, and I was steering, and I, and I got here, but I don't know how I got here because I was sure not in the car. I wasn't in the car mentally. I was somewhere else the entire time. So that's, that's an example of dissociation, and we, and we do it. We do it without even knowing that we're doing it because, you know, life is difficult and our, we need a rest. <laughs> Frankly, our, you know, our brains just need a rest. We just need to 
be be gone. You know, as, as I've been speaking the last few minutes, you've probably dissociated about a hundred times. You know, <laughs> you no, know, you're sitting in church, and none of you do this, of course. But you know, I'm I'm trying to listen to the sermon, and I'm thinking, let's see, hamburgers or chicken for lunch? Let's see, well, I've got that, I've got that casserole in the freezer. I could pull that out. That would be really easy. You know. Oh my gosh, he's talking about righteousness. I should be listening to this. So that's, we do, we dissociate a lot, but if, if dissociation becomes a coping response and people are doing it quite a lot in their day, of course they're not going to be functioning very well as parents, as workers, if they're not mentally present in their lives. And that's, that's one of the, the symptoms that somebody's really still struggling with the aftermath of a, of a traumatic incident. Um, some people um, check out by getting high or getting drunk or abusing substances. Um, and sometimes this is kind of what we call comorbid. You know, you, you have, you know, there might be a, somebody had asked the question before about what if the person's depressed already before that? Um, what if the person, you know, maybe the person is already an addict or an alcoholic or, you know, and they're still doing these behaviors? It greatly complicates the recovery process um, if these were things that existed before. Um, but if somebody is using, you know, over, they're self-medicating with some kind of substance, um, that's something that you can gently just in, 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 a, in a framework of, of educating, you know, I'll just say, this is not a good time for you to be, you know, loading up on caffeine or going out and getting hammered right now. This is not a good time for you, to, not that there's ever a good time to go out and get hammered, but right now especially, <laughs> because you don't want, when somebody's already been through a traumatic experience, you don't want them to create another one, you know, it, you don't want them to go out and get drunk because they can't cope with their, with their pain of this, of this trauma, and then they go out and they create another trauma for themselves or for somebody else. So um, that's one of, the, one of the symptoms that you need to be aware of. Um, just a, kind of a numbing of emotions we call um, flat affect. You know, sometimes you look at somebody who's very depressed or very, very distressed, and you'd think that they would be very highly emotional, but really what you see is just the opposite. They're just flat. You know, they're just numbed, completely numbed out from their feelings. Um, because, the, you know, I've had people say, you know, I, when, I, when I try to gently facilitate their talking about what they're feeling, I, I can't, you know, I, because, and why, why can't you, or what, what do we need to do to make that possible for you? Because I think it's important that you start talking about this um, well, if I start talking about it, I'm going to start to cry, and I'm going to start to feel, and I might not ever be able to stop. I might start, I might start crying and never, ever stop. And, um, you know, I like what Paul said about, about a grief journal, because it is, it is healthy to tell, tell somebody, this is so overwhelming for you, and I'm not minimizing it in any way, but I'll, I'll, with some people, especially um, adult survivors of, of sexual abuse, I've dealt a lot uh, with clients like that, and they haven't talked about it. They, you know, they've never talked about it because it is just way too scary. And they say, you know, I'm afraid. You know, I, I'm afraid if I go there, I just I won't I won't be able to come back. And so I'll, I've done kind of a, a little little imagery with them. I, you know, I'll say, picture a container. You've got a container. You can make it could be a box, it could be a jar, it could be anything. It could be beautiful, or it could be ugly, or it could be drab. It's completely up to you. But it's a container. The important thing is that it's a container and it has a lid on it, and you have a place to to put the container. Okay. So, you know, they'll say, okay, I've got a it's a it's a ceramic jar with a lid on it, and and I'm and I'm going to put it in the on the shelf in my closet, and it's it's a way of kind of metaphorically teaching somebody to say, okay, 
while you're here with me, we're going to take the jar down from the shelf, we're going to take the lid off, and we're going to let that be. We're going we're to see what happens. We're going to talk about it. We're going to acknowledge that it exists. Then at the end of the session, and it's important when you're dealing with grief or trauma, that if you are inviting somebody to open up these very, very painful feelings, that you save some time at the end to help them to contain it again. Because they got to go back out, and they still have to get in their car and drive home, or they got to go pick up their kids from school. Um, they have to function. So really, really important to, to develop the discipline of if you've got an hour to spend with that person and they're willing to start open up, opening up these very vulnerable and painful feelings that you save ten minute, at least 10 minutes at the end to make sure that that person can leave without feeling like their guts are exposed. Um, really, really important concept. So you can not only use that, that metaphor of the container, but teach them to employ that at home. Okay, you don't, it would not be good for you to be obsessing about this 24-7. But, you, but you, now that we've opened up the jar, um, give yourself some time. What's, what, what's a reasonable thing? C can you, with a friend, you know, do you need to have a friend with you? And you, you talk about it for 30 minutes, and then you and your friend, you know, kind of work to put it back in the container so that you can go to work, or you can cook dinner for your family, or um, you get, get the idea there. It's, an, it's not always possible for people to do that, especially at first, but it's something that you can kind of work toward. Um, getting some of the scary out of talking about it, give, building in some kind of mechanism of containment for it, because it is really overwhelming sometimes. Um, another set of behaviors have to do with withdrawing, and this is what makes it hard to even identify sometimes. I know we've I've talked with um, Jeff and Sandra and the, the military ministry at Woods Edge about, you know, they want to, um, you know, there's, they were getting equipped to be able to do groups and, you know, trauma resolution groups with, with um, veterans returning and, and all these wonderful intentions, but... How do, we find the, how do we find the people that need this? And that's often a challenge because they don't want to identify themselves. They don't want to, you know, it's, especially with military folks, it's, you know, you don't, you don't talk about your weaknesses. You don't talk about how scared you are. You know, I'm a Marine. Marines, Marines aren't scared, you know, so, um, and that, so, so, they will tend to isolate and withdraw from others because it's very hard to admit that they need, need some help. So that's, those are some symptoms that can be anywhere along that trauma spectrum, um, and it just depends on the severity, the duration, the intensity of them. Um, this little, let's see, how are we doing? How are we doing? I, I, I have no idea. Okay. All right. Um, this little model called the SAFER model I got from the um, stress and trauma care that I mentioned this morning, the um, AACC Campus Crusade um, project. And, and it's, you know, this, this is just one way of remembering some of the things, some of the prin principles that you want to use. Um, and when, when caring for people who are recovering from trauma. Um, to, to stabilize, as I said, said before, the, you know, taking care of the needs, making sure that they're safe, if there's you know, suicidal thinking, assessing, referring, that kind of thing, um, but making sure that they're stable enough and safe enough to do, to do the work. Um, secondly, to acknowledge the crisis. When I go on, on site to one of these crisis intervention situations, one of the first things I say is, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about Fred and the accident of him falling off of the loading dock. 
I'm so, I'm so sorry that you've lost your friend, Fred. You know, saying the name, um, acknowledging exactly what the incident was. And again, it's, it's just that idea of, I am, I am willing to acknowledge that this really happened, inviting you to also just go ahead and begin to make it real. Because one of the, one of the things that happens with trauma is that your, your, your brain kind of gets scrambled. You know, your, your um, emotional brain, which is the limbic system in the brain, is, is working overtime to just help you manage the emotions that are churning in you. And the, the executive part of the brain, the, the frontal lobe, is kind of not working at its best because the, the energy, the blood flow, the, you know, the intensity in the body is going to just the emotional survival. Um, so, um, which makes it a, a really poor time to make a, a big decisions, you know, just, this isn't time to divorce your spouse or, or get into a hot new relationship or, you know, make a huge purchase or quit your job or get a new job, you know, give yourself time. Remember, it's like you've had a surgery and you've got to let, you've got to let the wound heal a little bit. Don't go running around on your broken leg or you're going to re-injure it. So, you know, don't be trying to make big things that involve lots of planning and, um, but you want to um, help the person begin to really acknowledge and and uh, make real that this really happened, and I, I, and I, so I need to slow down and process it. So part of what, what we want to do is help them kind of rewire those, those connections between the, the thinking, planning, and the feeling, reacting pieces. And the way that we do that, since the, you know, the, left, the left brain is where we, we think and, and uh, process language, and so we want talking about it, the, the, all the research and anecdotally we know that it, that's why they send me out to these sites where there's been a traumatic incident because the research shows that if people have a chance to talk about it, talk about what they, what they saw, what they heard, what, and then you know, just the facts of what happened, um, how they felt about it, you know, what, what was your first thought when that happened? Or, when, the, when they called you and said that your manager had been killed in the car accident, you know, what, what, what did you think? What did you feel? Um, and they begin to put language to it. And that somehow, in God's design, helps to reconnect some of, the, some of those brain functions when people start to talk about it. And it, it. Statistically, it helps people return to work quicker and just return to normal. It, it's often a new normal but it's some kind of normal functioning that they can live with. Um, since I'm running out of time, I want to I wanna make sure to, to get to um, this little bit on the bottom, which I should have labeled number five. Um, this is the thing that fascinates me the most about this whole area of, of dealing with trauma, is why do some of us handle it seem to, why do we handle it differently? You know, you, you can see um, some people that have had a very similar experience, like with a hurricane or something, and some people just come through things like that and they just seem to be relatively unscathed. You know, they're, they're, they bounce back really quickly. They're very resilient. We say they're very resilient. And I'm really fascinated, in fact, you know, I'm in, in uh, a doctoral program, and that's really my area that I'm I'm probably going to concentrate on is what are what are these characteristics that we have um, that help us to either um, be resilient or not to be resilient. And this man um, Salvador Madi, he he's done years and years of research on what he calls hardiness, and he believes that hardiness. Hardiness is this um, ability to, to respond to crisis and trauma and not be completely devastated by it, to be able to, you know, continue enjoying life in spite of the trauma that we've experienced. 
And he believes that it's something that can be reinforced, it's something that can be fostered, or even taught, coached in people. Um, and he, he works with uh, military pre-deployment and post-deployment to kind of reinforce these hardiness characteristics so that they'll be able to deal with the trauma that they're about to possibly undergo. And there are three components to it, and I'll just very quickly go through that. Commitment, and this is, you know, I'm saying this in the context of keep in mind that you don't want to just help the person get through the acute crisis that they're in, but hopefully as spiritually minded caregivers that they are going to have some opportunity for transformative growth through it. You know, if you've got to go through something terrible, you might as well learn and grow, some, grow from it, right? If you're committed to going on living in this world. So commitment, the commitment aspect is reinforcing in people, stay in the game. Even though this terrible thing has happened to you, um, everything that happens is, you know, it's common to man. You know, it's... There's nothing that can happen to us that's not common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. That's not minimi minimizing it, but saying, um, this has happened. Don't pull away from the people that you care about. Stay in the game. Stay engaged in life. And, the, you know, guys coming back from Afghanistan, when they, they're reservists, they go right back to work. They figure out, how do I reintegrate in my family? And, it's, and it can be very, very, very difficult to adjust to life back at home. But hardy, really hardy individuals can take that trauma experience and say, I still, it's still important to me to stay with it, to stay with life and to stay with the priorities that I had before this happened to me. Um, secondly, the element of control. Those who, those who have a sense of there are certain things that I can control in my life and if, if good things are gonna happen to me now, it's going to be because I decide to take hold of some things. I'm, gonna, I'm going to control the things that I can control, you know, that, that serenity prayer. I'm going to take whatever things I am in control of, and I'm going to be responsible for those things. Um, and then the third one is challenge, and this is really my favorite one. Um, you ever talk to somebody that's been through something horrendous, and they say, well, you know, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to give back what, has, what, what it has added to my life. I did a breast cancer survivor group uh, some years ago up in West Virginia, and every single one of those women who'd been through breast cancer said that, you know, getting the diagnosis was a day they will never forget. Extremely traumatic to hear the doctor say those words having to tell their husbands and their children what was going on. This whole series of, of this whole chain of traumatic moments as they endured the whole process and chemotherapy and mastectomy and radiation and all this stuff and um, their sense of, of their body image and, and all these things that were just horrible. But every single one of them said, I'm, I'm just a different person, I'm a better person, and I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but I'm glad, I'm glad in a way that I went through it because I know so much more and, I, and I'm so much more connected with God and, and I'm so, more, so much more connected with my friends and, and other women that are going through this. And it's been a truly transformative experience. So again, the, the trauma creates a crisis, a, a mixing of danger and opportunity. And in the case of trauma, it's that opportunity to re-examine re with people, how are you going to stay engaged in your life? How are you going to, um, how are you going to begin to, again to take responsibility for why you're here and your calling and your purpose and your responsibilities in life and how are, how are you going to take this awful experience and transform it into something that you can, uh, that's going to be purposeful and meaningful and useful to you in, in ministering to other people. So that's, um, his name is Salvador Mahdi, if you ever want to look up some of his, his work, it's um, 
It's very interesting. So that's my uh, little bit about trauma. Um, you know, the, the, uh, somebody had said that they, they liked about your, your style, Paul, is you're just, you're so calm and, you know, and that, that's really good modeling of, you know, tell me more, tell me more about that, wow. I can't believe that, you know, I can't believe that you survived that. Tell me more about that. You know, don't, it's not a time to use cliches or, or try to analyze it or argue with it, but maintain that, that calm, mirroring kind of stance, that, that um, responsive, what do you need? What do you, what do you want? To, what can you tell me about that? I want to know more about that. How, do, how have you survived that? I really admire how you, you've continued to, you know, take such good care of your kids and, you know, just reinforce everything good that they're doing to cope and teach them about everything that they're struggling with so they don't feel like they're freaks or crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, thank you. Fantastic. If you have any questions, please write them down. Um, we're going to be going to a break in just a minute. Um, Dr. Greg Ryan will be talking. We'll be going from trauma to parenting. Same thing, maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Ruth. That was awesome. If you just look at, uh, just to kind of look at the, the things that Ruth has shared with us, and just, again, thinking of them in terms of the framework that we're using. She talked about uh, creating a stabilizing and safe environment, that containment. That's all about that connection thing, creating a safe place where people can connect with you. Then encouraging them to go deeper in understanding and talking about the grief, the experience, that whole thing of confession. Then giving them, um, if you look down, at uh, that encouraging effective coping, giving them some course correction in the way they're do- doing life. And then finally inviting them into that final thing of resilience where there's commitment, control, and challenge as conviction takes root that in spite of the trauma, in spite of the grief, God has been good. What, God, what the enemy meant for evil, God has meant for good. I'm, I'm just blown away over and over again as I meet with people that even the worst traumas can be healed if they're, if they're uh, taken care of in a warm and loving relationship. If you imagine a child who goes out roller skating and falls down and gets, you know, gravel in his knee, um, if he is afraid to, to, to go and show the boo-boo to his mama, he could cover it up and let that gravel be embedded and possibly get infected and cause problems with scarring for years to come. But if he's able to go back home and get a loving, supportive response and endure the pain of getting it scrubbed out, um, then the chances are good that, that the scarring will be minimal, if at all, and the trauma will barely be remembered. So we have that opportunity to invite people, come into the light. Let God deal with your pain because he is a source of healing. Let's take a 10-minute break. Come back. Dr. Greg Ryan, um, he's the brother of our pastor, Chris Ryan. I'll tell you a tiny bit about him when we come back. Please make it a brief break, 10 minutes, because um, we want to give you all we can. Sorry to be such a slave driver. (laughs) 